This is a necessity because a lot of people say to me, well, I just feel so guilty, you know, taking time for me or I feel guilty saying no. And that's normal. You're a caregiver. Of course, you feel guilty when you can't care for others because that's intuitive for you. But you still have to look at it as if I don't do this, then I'm not going to be able to keep going. What is your why? And if you're unhappy, what would make you start the road to feeling better? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am a resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today my guest is Dr. Marie Holloway-Chuck, a board-certified emergency and critical care specialist who thought she'd be happy in full-time practice and then wasn't. Her journey took her through general practice, specialty practice, and academia, but ultimately it was a traumatic accident that finally got her to stop and ask what she needed to change about her life and practice, and then explore evidence-based strategies to share with the profession she loved. So here, Marie starts her story. Okay, there are a lot of folks right now in the veterinary medical space who have been talking for good reason about emotional well-being, burnout, stress, sometimes even deeper with trauma and suicidal ideation. Could you just give me a little bit, where did your journey start? How did you wind up in this space? Such a great question. You know, I think like many people, I sort of gravitated toward this out of my own experience and my own events in my life that sort of propelled me down the road of burnout and exhaustion. I've been in the veterinary space since I can remember. Both of my parents are veterinarians, so I grew up working in my mom's general practice and, you know, raised by two individuals in the profession. So I, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what was involved from a young age. I mean, my mom, you know, worked very long hours. She was always on call. You know, it was a lot. And even with that preface, I loved it. So I obviously chose to go down the same path ultimately branched off and did an internship and and specialization. So I became boarded in small animal emergency and critical care, which I love. And from my residency, I went into academia and that was really where I got my first taste of burnout. You know, I was on call 50% of the time, just working tremendously long hours. It was stressful. You know, there was a lot of competition and demands in terms of researching and mentoring graduate students and, you know, getting ready for promotion and tenure. And because I was working so much and on call so much, it was like this hamster wheel I couldn't get off of. And I just, I thought, well, I'm already here at the hospital on call. So I may as well just keep working in my office. And, you know, I just, yeah, wasn't, you know, promoting much of of a life outside of work. And, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was also, I think, struggling as well with mental illness. You know, I had a lot of anxiety. I was having some panic attacks and certainly I've struggled with depression on and off during most of my adult life. And I wasn't managing any of that. Nobody taught me about self-care in vet school. Nobody talked about mental illness, you know, 15 years ago. And it's certainly not in the ways that we do now in this profession. And so I ended up leaving my role, even though I loved it, just because I felt like it wasn't sustainable. And I didn't realize at the time that I was 
burnt out and needed to be taking better care of myself. I just thought, you know, I'm not cut out for this job in academia and I need to do something else. And and ultimately, I did something else. I became self-employed, started my own business, was traveling for locum work and speaking, and again, went down the same path of burnout because nothing had changed other than my job and my geographical location. And so, you know, it was really the shakeup of getting into a bad car accident about six years ago now that really caused me to stop and look at what I was doing with my life. I was rushing around. I was getting ready to go to a conference and... I had just come back from another speaking engagement and, you know, the accident wasn't my fault, but I feel had I been more mindful and maybe more present and less hurried and less exhausted that maybe it wouldn't have happened. And from there, you know, I really started taking a close look at what I was doing with my life. I was curious when you talked about, I think you started, did you have time in private practice? Were both your parents in private practice, normal private practice out in a regular hospital? My parents, I mean, they co-own the practice, obviously. They're married and still married. But it was my mom who primarily worked there with a couple of associates. Mm -hmm. I think had they worked together, they might not still be married to this day. (laughs) My dad, you know, he helped out with a lot of his behind the scenes, you know, a lot of the maintenance and, you know, a lot of the logistical administrative stuff with the practice, but my mom was a practicing associate. My dad had a full-time job in regulatory medicine. So he worked for several decades with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency in, in food safety. And then he worked for Alberta Agriculture, you know, more so focused on animal welfare. So yeah, so very, very different jobs. And I wanted to ask, so those two arenas, so now it sounds like I was thinking, oh, maybe you had, you kind of had two arenas where you could see veterinarians modeling whatever the workplace habits might be or whatever the balance habits might be. And did it look like kind of doable or were you kind of younger? You weren't even thinking about how this all balances together. You were just thinking, I really want to be a veterinarian. That is my goal. And you weren't thinking about kind of holistically what their lives looked like. In other words, I'm asking sort of that modeling did they model a different level of stress or a different level of busyness than you think you carried into your own work? Yes, I do. You know, I think, well, first of all, we're all different human beings. So we might be in the exact same role and have a completely different experience. And so, you know, I certainly had, you know, some, you know, living with mental illness, I think adds its own layer onto, you know, the stress and and how we cope with it. And at the time, I, I really didn't have that awareness and those coping strategies. I think, you know, I was young, I was naive, I didn't know how much really work it was and how stressful it was. And I think it's a different generational, there's a generational component as well, because I think the way that my mom handled it, that was just the way that it was back then. Like you worked and you worked six days a week and you were on call the seventh day and you were always available in the evenings and you worked 12 to 14 hour days. And, you know, my mom was very fortunate that my dad had more of a regular nine to five job and that he was also a great cook and a (laughs) great dad. And so, you know, he was able to care for us. I mean, there was three kids in the family and we all got shuttled around to work, uh, pardon me, to um, sports and to music lessons and that kind of thing. And so he was there for a lot of that. My mom was the one who came home late and was exhausted. And, you know, looking back now, I can see how much work it was, there was different stresses on my mom because she was a practice owner and she, 
yeah, she built up her practice. For me in academia, there was, you know, stresses that she never experienced, like publishing research papers and applying for grants and mentoring students and living away from family, you know, and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's all different and hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And I think everyone who goes into vet medicine for the most part we all kind of get a little bit of a rude awakening when we actually get into practice. Like, I don't think we ever really fully recognize how stressful the work really is. And I think that's changing now because the dialogue and the discussion has really changed and that we're more open to talk about the difficulties of veterinary practice. But back then, like, you know, nobody ever, 25 years ago, when I was thinking about going into vet medicine, nobody was like, well, just so you know, like there's a high rate of burnout. And, you know, I mean, it was like, great. That's, that makes perfect sense. Your parents are vets. Like, of course you, you know, and then you get into it and you're like, oh my gosh, there's all this moral stress when people can't pay and clients are demanding and nobody talks about self-care. So now I feel guilty when I want a day off and that's just not normal to leave on time. And, you know, like we have built up quite a workaholic culture in the industry, which, you know, I thank the millennial generation for shifting this, but, you know, it's changing, but the work is still hard. These were your thoughts entrenched. You worked your way through school, you went into practice, you went to academia, and then you hit a wall and you got out of academia. But then when you built this new business outside of locum tenens work and, and going to presentations, it felt just as busy or busier or busier in different ways. So you hit this car accident and I was a little, it sounds, did the car accident, why was that a wake up call? Cause I worry a little bit, like, did you immediately criticize yourself? Which I kind of heard you like, maybe if I hadn't been so rushed as in this was my fault, was it guilt that propelled you? Was it time you had, you couldn't work and you had to reevaluate? What kind of happened then? Yeah, honestly, it was all of the above. So you hit the nail on the head. There was definitely some, some shame and some blame around it. Like, oh, you know, like that negative self-talk that so many of us do in this profession. Like if I had just been paying attention, if I hadn't been driving that fast, if, you know, and again, I mean, the person did an illegal left turn and T-boned me. So, you know, my car was totaled. I was injured. I definitely had to take a little bit of time off work. I remember having to actually cancel a speaking engagement, which was like mortifying to me to not be able to show up, you know, for something that I had agreed to do. Right. And, you know, it was honestly, I mean, call it what you will. I really felt like it was a sign. Like I felt like, you know what, this is the universe telling me slow down. What are you doing? Like you are on the same hamster wheel and in and amongst all of this, you know, I was having some health struggles too. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm into fitness. I'm, I've always been a, a, a avid exerciser. It really helps regulate my mental health and, you know, helps me to feel strong and everything else. So I was taking care of myself, but not in the way that I needed to, in terms of my mental health, you know, I, I really needed to be seeking counseling and dealing with some of these, you know, underlying mindsets and thoughts that were causing me to engage in such workaholic behavior and, you know, to be so hard on myself and to push that time for myself aside and, 
you know, and to just take a break. So part of it was enforced. Part of it was a bit of reflection with the, some of the money that I got from the settlement. I mean, obviously I had to buy a new car, but I had some money left over that I used to take yoga teacher training. And that gave me a month off of work of just this intense self-reflection and being in my body and focusing on my breathing and looking at my thoughts. And, and that was when I did a lot of reading and a lot of introspection and a lot of work. And I saw such a big transformation in myself that I thought I need to share this with others. Like I am not the only one who's going through this. And this is when the media and and the industry was really starting to talk more about mental health and suicide in the profession. And I was still, you know, quite popular on the speaking circuit. And so I started pitching some ideas for speaking that were not emergency and critical care related, but that were well-being related. And let me tell you, there was a lot of pushback initially. People (laughs) like, nobody's going to want to they want was to it passive aggressive pushback or no, were they aggressively just, told you this is not going to work? They just said, you know what? Nah, I don't, you know, people aren't really into that. Like, I don't think we're going to, there's not enough interest. People really want to hear you talk about resuscitating cats and transfusions and, you know, which I still love to talk about, but I thought you got a lot of people who could talk about that, but, but I have done the work and the research and, you know, I have this new found understanding and knowledge And thankfully, there has been a ton of research coming out in the last 10 years in the veterinary space on well-being related topics that I feel like I can put this in a context that is relatable to people in this industry, given my experience, given what I know to be their experience and, you know, that I feel like I can help them through this. Like I have been helped through this and don't get me wrong, I'm still a work in progress. Like I'm not like this, oh, I figured it all out. My life is perfect. It's like, you know what? I continue to, you know, adjust and to pivot and to learn and to grow and to, you know, change things, especially in the last 18 months of the pandemic, you know, we're constantly needing to evolve and change. And I'm just happy to talk about that with people. But I do love that it is such a veterinarian thing to do that if you're like, I need to stop. I need to change my life. You didn't just take yoga classes. Of course you signed up to become a certified yoga instructor. That is such right. So hard charging, loving the education. Yes. Yes. We are a very driven people who (laughs) like to go into things whole, you know, with our whole heart and soul. And, you know, we love evidence and there's nothing I love more than, you know, reading a paper and really, being able to share what the research shows in the context of really how we can, you know, turn that into something meaningful in our own lives. So I love what I get to do now. I mean, I, I'm thankful that I still get to practice, but I also get to help a lot of other people to stay in the profession. I mean, I look at my parents who practiced for more than 40 years who, who were in the industry, the profession for more than 40 years. And I'd like to see that for all of us, you know, that we can really stay resilient and in this profession long term. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program 
where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. You gave me a lot of possible topics when we're thinking about individual well-being, self-care, boundaries are a major issue, work-life separation, perfectionism, self-compassion. Is there a particular one of the things revolving around individual well-being I'm always concerned, we'll talk about organizational well-being later, but I'm always concerned the answer to the stress and the suffering that people may be feeling themselves in their jobs as a veterinary professional oftentimes gets put off on, well, you need to change some things. You need to go do, you need a hobby. You need to spend more time with your friends. You need to go with more hikes. You need to change the way you communicate. And all that is powerful. I think people need to feel like agents for change is there a particular hurdle? People come to your sessions and then they hear all these things they're supposed to do. And then many of them, like all of us, are going to go home and not do them, maybe until they're here, hit a crisis. Is there something you tell people or some way you cajole people over their first hurdle to try these new things about one of those topics to get them to do the thing? And do you also share my, I worry that people are being told you need to fix this yourself. And I wonder how much of these things are fixable just by individuals out in the world. How do you look at that? Yeah, you know, it's such a great perspective. And and I thank you for sharing that. And I agree with you. And I do get that pushback. You know, I feel like it's one more thing I need to do. I feel like it's another thing I'm doing wrong. You know, it's another thing I'm not doing. Yes. And yeah. And, you know, it hurts my heart a little bit to hear that perspective just because I feel like my message is meant to be more empowering Because when I look at conversations that are circulating in the veterinary space right now, you know, that, oh, if the clients would just be nicer to us, it would be so much easier. Or if people would just stop getting pandemic puppies, you know, then my days would be shorter. And those things are so out of our control. The only thing we have control over is ourselves. It's how you respond to those clients. It's how you boundary yourself within your day. So to say that I want people to do some of these you know, to engage in some of these skills, whether it be with self-care, setting boundaries, saying no, and so forth, it is meant to take the power back and to recognize I do have control over some of these things. I can't control my clients. I can't control my boss. But everything that we go through in life is ultimately, to some degree, our decision. It may not be our decision that it happens, But it is our decision how we we respond to what happened. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, I really try to get people to see that if you do not take some steps or some initiative to care for yourself, to, you know, put boundaries into your life, to manage what you do, to make time for self-care, you will not be able to continue to do this work long-term. Like you will hit that wall. Something will happen. A patient will suffer because of a 
mistake or, you know, your family is going to get tired of dealing with, you know, that what's left of you when you get home or, you know, that your coworkers are going to, you know, go bananas because they're tired of your burnout and taking it out on them. You know, like there will be consequences. And so this is a necessity because a lot of people say to me, well, I just feel so guilty, you know, taking time for me, or I feel guilty saying no. And that's normal. You're a caregiver. Of course you feel guilty when you can't care for others because that's intuitive for you. But you still have to look at it as if I don't do this, then I'm not going to be able to keep going. And I hope I'm an example for that. I think there's many other people that are examples of that. I think if people look at their own lives, they'll see times in their life when they were not looking after themselves and they made a mistake or a relationship broke down or something happened as a result of it. So let's not let it get to that. And let's put these, you know, tools and mechanisms in place so that we can show up as the best person in this work, knowing how hard this work is, right? Knowing that clients are going to be difficult, knowing that our caseload is going to be super high, knowing that we're going to be short staffed at work. How do I set myself up for success within that? Okay. So then let's, I I love the fact that you mentioned the guilt of the caregiver, So let's just lean into that as the thing. If you have a group of people you're talking to, so whether it's going to be about self-compassion, that's going to play into guilt, perfectionism, guilt there, work-life separation, guilt, boundaries, guilt, self-care, guilt. There's guilt all around it. Is there, when these people come and they give you the message because they want to, they want to go back to the old pattern. The old pattern is it makes them feel good to care for people and not focus on themselves and to push that focus off have you watched either with clients or with people who've come back and told you about the thing that resonated? Is there a particular small lesson that you share with people along any of those individual well-being tracks that helps them push through that guilt the first time they hit that, this makes me feel bad. I don't want to do it. This makes me feel bad. I don't want to say it. This makes me feel bad. I don't want to not do this. Mm -hmm. Mm You know, I really feel like it's something that each person needs to come to on their own. I really try and get the individuals that I'm working with to really think about what their why is moving forward with this. Like Because they're so different. They have so many reasons they're doing exactly. this. And so many, yeah. For some people, it's, you know what, my health, if I'm really being honest with myself, my health has suffered. You know, I've gained all this weight and I you know, I'm not sleeping well. And, you know, my cholesterol has never been this high or, you know, whatever it is. And and they're right. like, you know what, I want to, you know, take better care of myself. And so that's the why for them. For some people, it's their kids, you know, a good friend of mine, who's a specialist, you know, she really struggles with, you know, wanting to be the best, you know, doctor for all of her clients and wanting to be the best mom for her kids. And then also wanting to be a, a partner, a wife in, in all of that as well. And, She just said, it's got to be about my kids. Like I have to, like they are growing up faster than I can even imagine. And I have been spending these 14, 16 hour days at work. And I think one of them said to her, you know, at one point, like, mommy, like, we just feel like we never see you. And, you know, it just kind of hit her. And she was like, what am I doing? Like, this is, you know, this, it can't go on like this. So, you know, I think for everyone, it's different, but figuring out what is most important to them. And if it is your work, that's great. How do you want to show up at work? Because I know for me, I love my work. I'm passionate about my work. But I know when I'm not taking care of myself, I might show up to a shift 
cranky, short, (laughs) unapproachable. You know what I mean? Or I might show up to a meeting or a podcast, you know, foggy and not formulating my thoughts or not joking or coming out the way that I normally come out. I want to be able to show up as my best self all the time in service of other people in however way that looks. And I know for me, when I let my boundaries slide, for example, like if I overschedule myself or, you know, I book the the night session and then I'm like, you know, really off the next day because I didn't get my self-care in that evening, I know that I'm not showing up well. So it's like, you know, there you go again, Marie, like let (laughs) more and, and, you know, it's just like lesson learned. But that is what's most important to me. Everybody's going to be different. So they have got to experience that and to recognize that it takes a bit of self-reflection, takes a bit of honesty. You know, we so often in this profession, we just think we can do it all and we can just power through. It's like pedal to the metal, put your head down, just keep going. And I can't tell you how many people, especially in the last 18 months I've talked to, who said, you know what, I thought I could just power through this pandemic and I completely hit the wall and now I'm not working indefinitely. Like I have quit my job and I don't even know if and when I'm going to go back because they really just thought they could power through, that it was a sprint and not a marathon. And that's just not the way this profession is. It's just, it's not sustainable. Do you hear, I don't know if you have, so this is just a a, sort of a speculative question for the people who do crash and then they, they, you know, they take the off ramp of veterinary medicine. They're like, I don't know when I'm going to come back. Is it going that far and reaching that really painful crisis? And that's what, if they'd taken, if they'd done a little work before they'd been given some space and time to do that, maybe they wouldn't have gotten to that point. Do you think they get back on? Or do you think a lot of these people, we talk about burnout or people and leave the profession. Do you worry or think, do you have any feeling, do they come back if they go and take care of themselves and go work on these issues and come back? Or are these people kind of lost to the cause or they've gone off somewhere else? It's a great question. You know, I think many of them do come back and I've seen them come back. I've had a classmate of mine who was in a horrible job, her first job out of vet school, got horribly burnt out. It was super high caseload, zero mentorship. She yeah. wasn't taking care of herself at all. She left and was working at a bakery and we, we reconnected <laughs> and I was like, what's happening? And I said, you know, I think you were burnt out and I think that you need to try a different job that is more amenable to you and your lifestyle and what you need and recognizing that. And so often veterinary team members, whether it be techs, nurses, vets, everyone, they get themselves into these roles and into these jobs that are just not the right fit for them. And they just assume that all jobs are like this. And I'm not saying the grass is greener and just find another job and everything will be amazing. But the point is, if you do not have that awareness of what is most important to you and what you need to thrive in your work role, then it is very easy if you are you know, in a role that is not resonating with you to become burnt out. It might be that you're bored. It might be that the opposite. You're totally overworked and overwhelmed. Maybe you're a person who values freedom and you want the ability to make your own schedule. So maybe you would be better as a locum or, you know, there's so many different options for individuals. And so often it's like, wow, this profession isn't for me. You know, I'm so burnt out, but taking a step back and looking at why did this happen? Where's the disconnect? Was it something in me that I was not voicing what I needed or setting boundaries or taking care of myself? Or was it the situation that I was in and it just did not 
you know, resonate with me or just didn't align with my core values. Is there, the answer might be, because your answer to the why was, hey, there are so many answers to the why. Is there a particular medium that has worked well for you or if people you've worked with to find the time and the mental bandwidth to ask those questions? Because you ask those, because you have to figure out, was it me? Was it the people? Was it just the kind of job? So maybe me and the people are great, but this kind of job just isn't, right? What do you use? I mean, is it exercise to give give your brain and body time to think stuff through? What is a good way of, if people are not asking this why right now, mm. and they don't have a practice of asking the why, they just push forward, nose to the grindstone, shoulder to the wheel. Is there something you encourage people to dip their toe into to say, here's a way or a space you could give yourself so then you could ask this question? Absolutely. So again, it is just like the why is so different for everyone. The how (laughs) is equally different, right? So I can share what's worked for me and what I know has worked for others, but didn't work for me. So for me, mindfulness was a huge piece of all of this. So early on, you know, a doctor recommended to me taking a mindfulness-based stress reduction program to help manage my anxiety and depression. And it ended up being transformative for me because I was never a person who sat still, lived in the moment. I was always like, what's next? What's next? Or dwelling on, (laughs) I can't believe that happened and ruminating. And, you know, so it allowed me to be more present minded and to notice, okay, I, I don't feel comfortable in this situation and what's coming up for me and what are the thoughts and, you know, to have that awareness, just to start with that awareness. So mindfulness was huge. Counseling and, you know, with speaking to a mental health professional was huge. I've spoken with coaches, several different coaches over the course of my career who have helped me to look at those questions, you know, like what is of most importance to me in my life? What are my core values? How can I build a life that aligns with those or that resonates with me? You know, for me, the exercise and the self-care, that's just been, you know, something that has really helped me in terms of managing my stress. But when it really comes to that introspection and and awareness, it's definitely been, you know, the mindfulness, the counseling, the coaching, and then a lot of reading. You know, I do a ton of reading. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a, I love to call myself a lifelong learner. I'm always taking in information. You know, not all of those things are going to resonate with everyone. For some people, they like to journal. They like to write things down, get things out on paper, or they like to connect with other people and to have conversations with friends. And, you know, they might have a family member they're really close to, you know, so it's different and the epiphanies come in different forms and, you know, in different ways. So again, a lot of it might be trial and error, but there are lots of resources and more now than ever before that are specific to veterinary professionals to help them with these very questions. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.